Welcome to a brand new episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by co-executive chef and co-owner of Jollity in Dayton, Ohio, Zach Wiener, who I first kind of learned about him and Jollity really from Jorge Guzman um, back in kind of January when Jorge, who's the executive chef over at Sueño in Dayton, came on the podcast. And that was a place that he recommended kind of in the burning grill question segment at the end of his episode started following on Instagram. And then I had Devaney, who is Chef Andrew Smith's wife, Chef Andrew Smith of Roy's Ave Supper Club and Isla, uh, his pop-up that he does from time to time. She reached out to me on Instagram as she does uh, every once in a while because she's awesome and does a whole bunch of stuff with plants and everything too as well. So uh, sometimes we shoot her questions, but she reached out and said, hey, go check this place out. It's an awesome restaurant. And it was kind of already on her radar and that kind of reaffirmed it. So we're like, all right, we got we to gotta definitely make it out there. And then we went to the Veritas Rue pop-up dinner that they did, uh, the first one at Rue. We were supposed to go to the second one, but we wound up in the hospital, so we weren't able to go to that one. But the first one, uh, we actually ran into Daniel Kamel uh, in the parking garage uh, as they were leaving, and we were kind of leaving at the same time. We were chatting um, while it was probably like 30 degrees and freezing our asses off, but he also recommended going to Jollity too as well. We had a few different people kind of recommend this restaurant, so we definitely wanted to check it out. We drove out there uh, one evening and had a great meal. We went to a restaurant, I think like the night or two before my wife was really looking for like a really well-cooked steak, like not like well done, just like really done well. Tried to get it at the restaurant that we went to a couple nights before, didn't really work out. And this kind of hit the spot, their, uh, their Koji steak uh, that they have on the menu there. It's a really kind of small, I don't want to say rustic. It's more like um, industrial. It's got kind of some industrial vibes in there, but it's really cool space. Um, it's not super noisy or anything like that. It's pretty much, you do need a reservation. They do have kind of the bar up front in the corner, but I would recommend making a reservation. They just started recently doing a tasting menu uh, that they're going to be doing up at the bar right up uh, against the kitchen there. This was also recorded like a week before Zach participated in the Indie Chef's dinner that they did over a course of a weekend. It was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That came the following week, so we didn't really touch on that just because they hadn't fully like announced the whole lineup and everything. And he was involved in it and everything, but... You know, we didn't get to talk about that experience. So um, whenever he returns, we'll make sure that's one of the questions that we ask. But you can follow him on Instagram at Hot Behind You. And you can also follow the restaurant at Jollity Dayton, too, on Instagram. You can make sure to follow us uh, on Instagram, too, as well, at Spoon Mob. Twitter and Facebook, Spoon Mob 1. TikTok, it's just at Spoon Mob. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com, for different uh, photos and contact information of all the guests that we've had on the podcast and everything like that. And then make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on all the major platforms. Episodes come out on YouTube a week after they debut on the podcast platform. So make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel, too, as well. And uh, without any further delay, here is my conversation with executive chef Zach Wiener the co-owner and co-executive chef of Jollity in Dayton, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day off after the, the holiday weekend there. I think I first learned about you guys, well, really from Jorge Guzman, who was on this podcast, and then Andrew Smith's wife, Devaney, she messaged me and recommended that we check you guys out too. And we, I think we already had reservations booked up to that point. And then we ran into Daniel Kamel at Veritas. They were doing a collaboration dinner with Rue and we both parked basically in the same parking garage. And, and he recommended checking you guys out too as well. And, and we were able to make it out there and, and had a fantastic meal. I remember, I think the week before we went to a restaurant 
And my wife, who was pregnant at the time, ordered like a steak and it didn't really hit the spot. And so we ordered the the Koji steak that you guys have on the menu. She was like, this is what I wanted last week. So it was a fantastic time. And it's always cool to find, you know, new restaurants outside of, you know, where we live here in Columbus. But, you know, I want to get to kind of jollity and, and how you guys got everything started and everything. I like to start always at the beginning of kind of your career you know, how did you first get involved with cooking and wanting to become a chef? I mean, you're originally from Dayton, I think, right? Yeah, my parents were military, so we moved around quite a bit, but I've been here since I was probably 13 years old, I think is how long I've lived in Dayton and then born and raised and proud. Was that because of the Air Force Base there, right, Pat? Yeah. So we moved from Nevada. We lived in Carson City for a while, and then we moved back to Virginia near Langley Air Force Base. And then my dad retired out of the military and we were just trying to figure out where we want to go. And by we, I mean my parents as a child. And uh, they decided they wanted to move back here. My mom's from a little town outside of Dayton called West Alexandria. So it was close to where she grew up and just kept moving closer and moving closer. And then my dad passed away. My mom found a house in Dayton and we've lived here ever since. So how did you first get involved with cooking? Was it just job in high school, only job you could get at 14? Or how did all that start? So it was kind of out of necessity for me at first. As I mentioned before, my dad passed away whenever I was fairly young and my mom handled it how she handled it. There were times where we would you know, not have convenience food in the house anymore, which we never really had a lot of growing up. Um, but, you know, you can only make so many pizzas and you can only eat so many microwave burritos before you run out, especially when there's three kids and two of them are to eat a lot. Kind of just became, okay, well, mom's gone right now. I'll figure out what to cook for dinner. And we ate a lot of tacos nonetheless. And, you know, it was a, it was a chore at first. It wasn't something that I enjoyed doing. But the more I had to do it, the more fun it became. Like, I was never the best student. I was never good at sports. I was never a musician. I'm not a good artist by any means. And so this was the thing where I was just like, oh, like, I enjoy this. Cinnamon is a giant joke in my house because when I started messing around and figuring out how to dinner at 14, I put cinnamon in everything and thought that I was the coolest person in the whole entire Cinnamon cinnamon tacos, cinnamon, whatever, brownies, whatever I could put it in. So my sister and my brother are both in the industry as well. So they kind of all together. That is the constant joke for them. Should you put any cinnamon in anything today? No, guys, I did not. After that, I started going to a different school because we relocated to a, a downtown Dayton area and I was not doing what I was supposed to. I was skipping a lot of school, making the wrong friends, this and that. And my mom decided that something had to change. And so she kind of was open around and found Miami Dollar Street Technology Center, which is in Clayton. She encouraged me to you know, seek out something to do there on the culinary arts program. And initially I was denied, you know, they, the class was full and my mom somehow did what she did and got me into this career tech school. And that's history since then. I've never done anything else. I've never wanted to do anything else. I was just like captivated by what food is and what you can do and how you can constantly manipulate things to kind of get the individual palate or person. So I just, I started there and I've never stopped and I had no plan to. Before your mom helped get you enrolled in that, essentially a vocational school is what it sounds like. Did you ever work in a restaurant in any capacity or anything like that? Or was that kind of your first experience with dealing with culinary arts? That was my first experience with dealing with culinary arts. Yeah, I wasn't old enough to 
full-time job at that point. And so after I started going to CPC is when I got my first job at a little French pizza here in Oakwood. Didn't really know what I was doing at all. But you learned a lot there in a very short amount of time. And it kind of became much, it was too intense for me at age 16. You know, I'm working with people that are in their mid-20s, early 30s. And it was just, I didn't take it seriously like I should have. And it was just way, way too intense for me. So I only lasted there maybe eight months, nine months. I was like, I'm going to go get a regular teenager job. Because <laughs> I want to see my friends. After you start at this vocational school, from there, where do you go? Because eventually you wind up at the Midwest Culinary Institute in Cincinnati. But did you work at a few places before going there? So I didn't. So I abruptly moved out when I turned 18. You know, I was already planning on going to the Midwest Culinary Institute. And moved to Cincinnati, got a job in a hotel over the summer while I was waiting on classes to start and worked there for a while. Maybe midway through my first year, there was a restaurant in Hyde Park called Cumin. And I worked there for about a year and a half. And while I was in culinary school and working, we found out that my wife was pregnant. So it was like, uh, okay, well, I mean, we need money now more than we need anything. So I decided to stop going to Midwest Culinary Institute and just continue working at Human for as long as I can. And that is the place where you know, like, I think I finally learned to take cooking seriously. It was uh, there was a small staff, there were like five of us. Um, it was what I perceived to be very serious at the time. You know, we worked all day. We worked all night. You know, there was no calling off. There was no leaving early. There was no anything like that because you were relied on to be there. And it was, you know, right around the time before like molecular astronomy craze that happened in the mid 2000s. So it was, there was a lot of that. So on top of, you know, learning how to precisely on a line, I was also learning all of the science that was behind food and, you know, kind of what made things do that. And it was less about the Less about, you know, replacing this with this chemical or adding this chemical and just more about how, you know, proteins interact when turn into sugars and all of the real science behind it. <laughs> it, was a, it was a lot of fun. And I was there for um, know, probably two years total, maybe, maybe a little bit less. And uh, after that, I actually left and decided that I was you know, done cooking. I didn't think I really wanted to do it anymore and decided that I wanted to be a social worker. And my family was adopted and kind of pay it back and pay it forward. It's something pretty important to me. And uh, I started going to school to be a social worker, and that lasted about six months, and it broke me. I did a, a weekend internship at social services downtown in Cincinnati, and was just like, nope, I am not strong enough to do something like this at all. So back to the culinary industry, I went. And so I floated a couple of different places, like, I worked in healthcare for maybe two years, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and how I wanted to cook and trying to spend as much time with my wife and daughter as I possibly could at the time. And I was miserable. That was like the most miserable time of my whole entire life because you were just opening stuff and, you know, trying to make people happy, which is, I think, the most important part of this industry. But it's hard to, and they are not cognizant and, you know, don't really, you can't cook the food you want to, I guess is the easiest way to put it, but you know, spent two years trying to make residents happy and left there because I was so miserable, like I said, and then started working at a little farm to table restaurant back in Dayton. We moved back so my wife could go to the University of Dayton and finish her degree and, you know, so I just worked my way through some restaurants here. Um, and yeah, that was 
all it was called all of an urban and it was it was an awesome restaurant it was also very very small i had this thing about working with very small teams i suppose and uh you know there was like nine of us maybe and it was intense we do 100 covers on the weekend 115 covers on the weekend the restaurant's at 28 people <clears throat> and we did everything 100 everything from scratch and you know that's where i first got to start actually working with true local farmers like you know, people would pull up in trucks and you're unloading turnips and carrots and leeks and stuff out of the back of their farmer's truck and the way they go and we're processing it all because the space was so small it had to all be done the moment it walked into the field. so so going back to culinary school real quick for a minute was there anything that was enticing for you to go to the midwest culinary institute or was it just affordability and location what kind of made sense for that school versus, you know, some of the others. I know there's a couple in Pittsburgh, Chicago, obviously, you know, the ones in New York, but those are all probably super expensive. I think I was a little bit dated whenever I pitched because I had applied at the Culinary Institute of America. I was accepted and then I was denied financial aid. And so, you know, guys come from just a very normal family and we weren't well to do or anything like that. And there was no way that mom paper and there was no way that they were going to approve student loans for that much money so you know that kind of like bolstered my dreams a little bit and just took me down a peg so it was either stay in Dayton and go to the community college here which has a culinary program or at least move out of the city and I decided to move out of the city I asked this to everybody if someone in your kitchen now came up to you and just said you know hey I'm super passionate about becoming a chef owning a restaurant on my own one day you know, do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? I tell them to be a dishwasher first if they've never worked in the kitchen. It was always my first answer is like wash dishes and watch people cook on and just kind of go from there. Because, you know, one of the major reasons that I stopped going to culinary school was that I was learning more in the restaurant that I was working at at a faster pace and also being compensated for it than I was waking up and going to school every day for six hours. Not to say it's not for everybody. Like some people learn better from sitting. I am not one of those people personally. And I don't, I don't know how many people in our industry do learn 100% best in a classroom setting. With your foray into social work, you know, I have a friend who I think we actually saw her maybe like a week ago and, and she's a social worker and she's told us stories and it, I don't know how she does it. It sounds like the most miserable job that anyone could have just with everything that you encounter on a day-to-day basis. But with your kind of foray into that, when did you realize, yeah, this is not for me. I want to go back into cooking, which is also, you know, another industry where people kind of fall into and they almost don't know how to get out of in a way, just like social work. So for me, it was, it was too heavy for me. Like I'm, I'm, I think I would consider myself a pretty empathetic uh, person and, you know, you're experiencing all of these, you know, kids, like I, I love children. I always have, I always will. I do my own, my uncle that you know, out, but, um, you know, I'm, I love them and I want to see everyone happy and I especially want to see children happy and to just be in that environment for a single weekend where you just hear heartbreak after heartbreak and you see, you know, dirty clothes and kids are hungry and crying because they miss their parents. They don't understand what's going on. I think that was just, it was too heavy of a thing for me to bear personally. I didn't do it. And I knew that. That weekend, I was just like, no, there is no way. 
going to make it through this in one piece. Where do you go after that? After Olive, I bounced around just a little bit. I you know, helped work in a catering place for a little bit because Olive, unfortunately, closed. Um, one of the owners passed away and they just kind of figured it was best to, in the spirit of the restaurant and try to carry it on. And so all closes and I just kind of bounced around a couple places. So I helped out in a catering place because I'd never worked in that field before and was just kind of looking to do something different and kind of understand the industry as a whole. And then after that, I ended up at a restaurant called Rudiment for Chef Van Kearney. And that was, that was a blast. That was my favorite job I've ever had. And How did you wind up there? Was it just kind of apply and they needed people or did you know somebody that kind of hooked you up? No, no, it was luck, and it was honestly because of my wife. So she uh, she encouraged me. I'd always wanted to work there. So Anne is the only person in our area that has ever wanted to do the work, and she won that for her restaurant in New Orleans, the hairstyle, and just before Rudiment, before she relocated. And uh, I believe she won two things through the work there, maybe just one. And uh, so, you know, she is the whole time I'm working in the industry, and that's the restaurant. That's not want to work at because the you know the standards are so high, and that's just where all the wine cooks wanted to be. And it's not like there's you know, a decent sized city, but it's not like there's you know a million restaurants to choose from for where you want to work. So when you hear something like that, it's very very enticing. So uh, you know I was looking for a new job at this time, so still just trying to figure it out. And I had always wanted to work there, and you know, my wife was just like, "Go apply." And I'm like, "I can't. Like, there's no way they're going to take me." And I asked them this range of credentials or I can do this, you know, I can do this as well as them or this or that. And she's like, well, how are you going to learn unless you actually go apply? And she's like, just go be a line Just go do it. And so I went and dodged and was fortunate enough to just keep the job and become part of their team. After that, you kind of start eventually working on the concept of Jolity. So how did you first meet, you know, your partners, Brendan Miller, Nathan Heal? We all went to the same vocational school, but at different schools. So Nathan was Brendan's senior in high school. Brendan was in class and friends with my wife. And then I am two years younger than Brendan and three years younger than Nathan. So what ended up happening was uh, a different friend of ours ended up becoming the culinary instructor for CPC. Um, and she invited us all to come judge the high school culinary competition. And we just kind of started hanging out then. I mean, I'd spent the time with Brendan in the past. And I had run into Nathan in the past, but we've never actually like spent any time together. So, you know, we're all judging competition. We're all decided to kind of just go out and hang out afterwards. And then things just kind of progressed and snowballed. And we've never stopped seeing each other. Judging a high school culinary competition, how do you approach that? Because you want to give honest, critical feedback, but you also don't want to crush anybody's dreams, right? How do you navigate all that? It was strange. Like, I think for me personally, it was you know, trying to remember what it was like being on the other side of that judgment. Like, uh, I did culinary competition both years, my junior and senior year of high school. Um, and, you know, it's just like, I'm you know, trying to be gentle. Like I said, I'm, I like kids. I'm good with them. So it doesn't matter whether they're old or young. It, there's a certain way that you treat children, I believe. And even in this day and age, and even in this industry, I still believe there's a certain way that you have to treat culinary kids. Because you don't want to discourage them, right? Like, we've always needed people to be in this industry. I think we're seeing that now more than ever. So, you know, you just try to encourage them. But you're also, as, as 
polite with criticals we can do, I think is important. <laughs> you, Brendan, and Nathan all started eventually doing pop-ups 2014, all the way back to kind of the first one. What was the most beneficial thing about kind of those dinners that you guys were doing? Was it just at that point, you guys messing around, see if everything kind of vibed or did you already all kind of, yeah, we want to open our own restaurant. This is how we kind of get to that point. No, I think that we, I think at the very first pop-up, we just wanted to do something different. Like the restaurants in Dayton at the time, they're all very much the same, not the same, they're all very similar. The menu sets were very, very similar. The service styles were very, very similar. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of experimentation. And so, you know, Brendan is a Johnson Wales graduate from North Carolina and very well traveled and, you know, my partner is and I'm very well traveled and Nathan is also very well traveled. So, you know, we all have our different food experiences and we were all, I think, just wanting to stretch and just do something a little bit different than the normal services that we had been doing over and over and over and over and over again. And felt like we maybe had the skill set at this point to kind of like grow and do it ourselves. Looking back on all the series of pop-up dinners you guys did, is there anything that you can kind of point to where you're like, oh, this is where the concept of Jollity really started to form? I honestly, probably the first one, if I had to guess, and not in the way where, you know, the, the concept of the food formed that way, but the concept of our, our brand and how we treat each other. Like, you know, Jollity Moons are likely in a cheerful activity or celebration. And that very first pop-up, everyone was just happy. And it was small. And I'm sure it probably wasn't the best food because it was, what, three years ago at this point? We've grown so much since then, but everyone left that pop up very, very happy. And because we tried to do things that people weren't doing here. And uh, I think that kind of is what really formed Jolly. We realized that that is the most important thing is to just, you know, have fun and like, you know, be serious and take yourself seriously and treat everything with respect from the plates to the people to the food. But also, you got to have fun while you're doing it. If not, what's the point? Did you guys only do pop-ups around the Dayton area or did you guys branch into Cincinnati, which is about an hour away? Columbus here is an hour away or was it just strictly Dayton? We mostly did them in Dayton. We did one pop-up at a restaurant in Cincinnati called Take the Beast. A very good friend of ours was working there at the time as the, I want to say Chef Day Cuisine, but it also might have been sous chef. And, you know, he was helping us to do all the pop-ups at the time. And, uh, talked to the chef owner Jeremy there and they were kind enough to let us do a pop-up on a Sunday at their spot. Then I think I think that was really the only one outside of Dayton. And Brendan and Nathan, they're both from Dayton too, right? That is correct, yeah. Is that kind of the reason why you guys always settled on Dayton and never wanted to do anything, you know, open a restaurant in Cincinnati, which is a you know, as you guys are doing all the pop-ups, a more thriving restaurant market versus Dayton, which, like you said, a lot of the restaurants were similar up until a year or two ago where, where things have really started to seem like they're changing in the, the Dayton food scene. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it was, you know, yeah, it's because we're all from here. Um, it made sense also to do it here. On top of everything else, it's, it's cheap to open a restaurant in Dayton comparatively. It's not cheap to open a restaurant anywhere, I suppose. But Comparatively, it is much more affordable to do something like that here. And the market is good. Like it's, you know, people eat out here a lot. 
there's you know, while there are many similar restaurants, there's still quite a bit of restaurants for the population that we have. And you can go to them on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and odds are they're going to be close to full. So, you know, we decided that this was going to kind of be the best place. And, you know, growing up here and just you know, cooking the same kind of food in each individual restaurant that we all worked in, we wanted to be able to offer more. And our thought process going into it was that if, you know, we are kind of tired of driving to Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, Detroit, because we always travel and eat together. You know, it's like one of the foundations of our friendship. Like we thought that if we were tired of doing that to have this kind of different experience, then other people also had to be tired of doing that to have a, a different experience. So we decided this was just going to be kind of where we point our flag and see what happens. How long did it take you guys to find the space that you're in now, which is in the Fireblocks district, which is a relatively recently renovated area of Dayton? Uh, we probably looked for two, maybe three years before we kind of found what we thought was going to be the, the perfect space. With the space you guys are in now, how much construction did you guys have to do? Or was that already kind of part of the revitalization of that area of downtown where you didn't really have to do too much? It was a mess when we found the space. Yeah, it was a mess. Like it, this bay used to be an old pawn shop. And I mean, it was like no one had been in here since they locked the doors and maybe some people broke in and put some stuff down. But yeah, it was a disaster. We built it from the ground up. <laughs> so all new electrical, plumbing, everything. Basically, the only thing that's the same is like the, the brick walls. That is correct. Yeah, everything. Every single thing we did in this building. When you guys are like designing out the restaurant, was there any style or aesthetic that you were kind of looking to implement based on all your different travels to different restaurants that you guys have been to? Like, oh, this would be cool if we did something like this place over here. Or, you know, I saw the layout of that kitchen over there and I didn't really like that. So I don't want to do this or that. So we wanted to it to be inviting like the, you know, two things that I think that we always talked about. And one of those was, you know, the restaurant always kind of feel like in some way, shape or form, you're walking into your aunt's house or your grandmother's house to where, you know, it is just very, very inviting and it's warm and it's you know, not too bright and, you know, pretty well lit. And that's why we have so many plants everywhere. Because we, we go for that vibe where you're just comfortable. We never wanted to present our skill set through atmosphere. We always wanted to present our skill set and our staff skill set through execution. And then the other thing is, you know, for all the time that we were cleaning this restaurant and just, you know, hanging out over the course of the years, we would have dinner parties whenever we could. We tried to invite as many people over get to my house, Brennan's house, and just, you know, get the whole cruise together because, you know, all of our friends are restaurant people for the most part. And we're all off on Sundays and Mondays. So we'd have these dinner parties on Sundays and we kind of, talked about and discussed the fact that no matter what happens, everyone always winds up in the kitchen. Everybody. You know, it could be the smallest kitchen in the world and 25 people are going to cram themselves in that kitchen and just kind of hang out and talk. Even if there's no food being cooked, apparently, I think it's just kind of where our circle of friends naturally migrates to a party and probably many other circle of friends too. So that was one of the other big reasons for, you know, this open kitchen concept is we want you to be in our kitchen. We want you to see what we do. We want you to see how we do it. And, you know, 
that it, it's a double-edged sword because that means everything has to remain spotless all the time. With the menu, you know, you kind of approached it a little bit different. You guys went in the direction of uh, dividing it up into like, I think it was staples and celebrations instead of the traditional apps, shareables, salads, main courses. What was the logic behind that? So I think when we were first kind of conceptualizing the restaurant, we kind of wanted it to all be shareable plates. Like we never really wanted to have any kind of like entree format. We never wanted to have any large plates. And then COVID happened. And we discovered pretty quickly that shareable plates were probably not going to be what is best when we're opening. Because, you know, we opened at like, so we opened this time last year. So we're coming out of the first wave of COVID. It's right before Omnitron. So we had to just kind of rechange our format and kind of figure out how to break it up. But with that being said, it wasn't like the menu was ever planned to have, you know, multiple appetizers, multiple salads, multiple entrees. The whole point of our menu is we just kind of took what is season and we kind of took how we're feeling inspired for that week for two weeks or three weeks or whatever the case may be. So we were just trying to figure out how to break that up to where it's not confusing because we're still in the Midwest, right? Like it's still Ohio and there still has to be a certain kind of form to a menu for it to be easily served and easily understood. And, you know, so we tried to balance that out between well, traditional and how we want to do it. And so the, the of the moment and the staples lasted for like, I don't know, maybe three months. And then we decided to change it to a four table and of the moment. So for the table, it's kind of like our more shareable side. And that's everything, you know, that's uh, people become more comfortable sharing things. We just wanted to group everything together, like how we would eat if we went out. What would be all the things that we would share in order for the table? And then the of the moment things are the entree style dishes that still, they change frequently. A lot of the food has a Korean and Japanese influence to it with some of the ingredients and everything. So how difficult is it for you guys to source some of those ingredients with Dayton not exactly being for a long period of time, a hotspot for restaurants? And then also, I think at at one point, I mean, maybe it's changed, but like the entire West side of Dayton didn't have really any sort of like grocery store for a time. And everybody was shopping at like convenience stores and stuff. And you guys aren't on the West side of Dayton, but half your city is basically in like a food desert as people would call it. So how hard is it to get the ingredients that you guys need to execute the food that you want to execute? So it, it becomes difficult um, at times. I mean, if we're fortunate that our menu structure is one that changes frequently. So it's pretty easy that if you know we find out we can't procure something that we are able to take a dish off the menu and replace it with something else. Um, but procuring stuff is hard right now, man, to be totally honest with you. Um, when I, right before you know the first big wave of COVID hit, I left the States and went to uh, like Osaka and Kyoto, Japan, and you know, spent a little bit of time there and just traveled by myself because one, I did not understand the severity of COVID. It's just like, I was just like, well, whatever, it'll be fine. And then I'm leaving and everyone's like, you're doing what? But while I'm there, you know, there's no tourism in Japan at this point. So I am like, you know, one of 35 people on a train and all of those people are locals. And so I was able to kind of use that to my advantage. And I made friends with people and made contacts with people that I don't think I would normally get to or talk to because they were slow and everybody wanted to spend time with you and ultimately everybody wanted you to spend your money there. 
So I was able to make all these contacts with people, whether it be you know, small batch soy producers or small batch miso producers, and you know, we just made friends over a couple of days. And yeah, you know, I got their business information. So we're able to procure some stuff from them. We do use a large wine distributor outside of Chicago to get some of our import goods as well. But we just order in bulk. It's unfortunately is what we have to do sometimes. It's like, you know, I might not need four cases of uh, grain vinegar that we use, but I'm going to order four cases that they have in stock. Traveling overseas during COVID, were you one of the first people basically in like Japan? Because I think for a while they were pretty much like locked down, no tourism. They pushed the Olympics out and everything. So were you one of like the first people that essentially got into the country? So I was the opposite. I was one of the last people, <laughs> I think. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, this is pre the pandemic hit in and everything shutting down. So, you know, I am traveling and I'm just like, wow, this flight is really empty. I'm like one of 13 people on a plane going to Japan. And I'm just like, man, this is crazy. Why is nobody else going to Japan right now? The weather's nice. And, you know, this has been my second time going. And the first time I went, you know, it's packed. It's September, it's packed, you know, everyone's on the plane. We have no like rain, yada, yada. And the second time I go, I'm like, no one's here. I get off the plane, the airport's empty. I'm just like, this is really bizarre. What's going on? Like I said, we had, you know, at least for myself, I'm not going to say we as the world, but for myself, I didn't understand the severity of what was and what was going on. But uh, it was an experience that I, I will never be able to replicate and one that I am not the slightest bit regretful about. It was so much fun. <clears throat> Were you ever worried about not being able to get back to the U.S.? At any point? No, because I, like I said, I still didn't understand the severity of the situation. I got back three days before they closed all the borders. Yeah, looking back on it, could have been a very silly decision to have made. But uh, I just yeah, I just went for it. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go have a great time. Like my flight's not canceled. Nothing's shut down. I'm just going to enjoy myself and have a wonderful time. Meanwhile, uh, the place I was working at at the time, Everyone's freaking out. They're like, you're still going? I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't I? What's wrong? It's fine, guys. Everything's going to be fine. It was not. <laughs> Fast forward six weeks later. At that point, too, you know, the restaurant's already in the works. Maybe you guys already had a lease signed or, or were about to or in the middle of construction and stuff. Was there any point where you guys were kind of looking at each other once COVID got into full lockdown mode and stuff? And you guys are like, uh, is, is this actually going to happen? Like, do we just keep going through with, you know, opening the restaurant? Yeah, there definitely was. I mean, you know, we were all furloughed at the time. So we spent a lot of time with each other over quarantine, you know initially planning the restaurant and then it did kind of get in the phase where we were like, ah, is this a good idea? Should we pull out? And we were given every opportunity to, um, you know, it was a you know, clause in our lease and, you know, we had every opportunity to just kind of like get out of it because construction was also moving slow. You know, everything was moving slow at this time. So all they had basically done at this point is just cleared out the initial rubbish from the day they hadn't started the work. Yeah. So, you know, every week we'd have a call with the construction company and our landlord and just kind of walk through it. And every week they're like, you guys sure you want to move forward? They're like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, and because in our minds also, I think, and I don't know how many people kind of had this point to discuss, it was, uh, you know, this isn't, this isn't going to last too long, right? Like this can't last forever. It's probably going to maybe just be a couple weeks, a couple months, and it'll be back to business as normal. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into and how it was going to disrupt 
you know, supply chains and staffing and just the industry. And it's, we had no idea what was coming, but we decided to just stick it out and power forward. And this had kind of always been our dream and goal over the course of the last couple of years and decided to just go for it. We figured, you know, either things were going to get so much worse that the restaurant was going to be the last thing that we had to worry about, like what's worse, or things were going to eventually have to normalize in some way, shape, or form. And we figured if things were going to normalize in some way, shape, or form, that restaurants would be needed if they existed during the, you know, the Great Depression, festival days, and all this other stuff, then there's no reason that they wouldn't exist in the, of the pandemic as we now know it. You guys opened May of 2021. At that point, you know, the lockdowns and, and stuff for over, I think, wrapping up kind of the mask mandate that we had in, in Ohio, or maybe it was kind of already expired over there and, and we just had it here in Columbus. But, you know, that kind of is the turning point for people are starting to go back out to eat. They're being more comfortable going back out. Did that kind of help you guys? And you guys saw like this kind of rush of business because it's like, oh, we can go back out to eat. And also there's this new restaurant here that we can try too as well. We did. We did. We had a very very busy summer um like even looking back at our metrics we're at the point now where we're a year and we can compare the chat numbers like even looking back on our numbers we're just like oh wow you know it was it was a good summer last year and then omnicron hit in september and that just kind of ripped the wind out of everyone's sales i think probably in the whole industry anyone that anyone that lives in a city i think where mass mandates were over and everybody's allowed to go back outside and you know, people are excited to be around each other, even if it's at a, a distance. Um, I think that when Omnicrom kind of hit, that it just kind of, it really messed everything up. <laughs> because we're just expecting, you know, fall's never like, September's never crazy busy, but it's usually decent business, especially mid to late September, has been my experience in this industry. And September was horrible. And October was horrible. Like we'd have nights where we do, 15 covers, 16 covers, and you're just standing there like, ah, did we make the biggest mistake ever, possibly? <laughs> and then it kind of, you know, rebounded itself back in, and, you know, it, it normally just didn't level that. I'm, I'm very glad that we kind of went through that, especially in the beginning, because I think, you know, opening a new restaurant is unnerving, period. It doesn't matter, I don't think, what time it is in the world opening a restaurant and during a pandemic was wildly unnerving. Um, and then we kind of got like the worst of it. I think when the, the variant hit again, it was just like, oh, okay. So now we kind of know what to expect and how we need to pivot and how we need to engage things should something like this ever happen again. Um, I can't imagine what it was like for all of those restaurants that you know, had to just figure it out. Because we were given the opportunity, you know, watch all the restaurants go through the first wave of COVID and learn what they did and learn how they did it. And, you know, we got to talk to our peers and our mentors about what they were doing and what was working and what was not. I can't imagine having to go through that part without the information. You guys did brunch for a while. And then I think over the winter didn't do brunch and then are bringing it back or have maybe already brought it back. Which one of you three is the brunch person? Because most chefs hate cooking brunch and eggs and stuff like that. So me and Brendan are here during brunch service when we were doing it. Nathan's here as well. Um, it's normally me or Brendan on the line. I mean, it was never very busy. I don't, I don't mind it. Like I said, I have two kids. My day starts at 
6.30 every day, seven days a week. It doesn't matter. I normally get the restaurant between 8 and 8.30 anyway because I do all the baking and pastry production. Um, so that's my day starts then anyway. So Saturday, it was just like, well, I guess instead of going in at 8 or 8.30, I'm going in at 7. So starting some more and trying to get ahead for the day. Has brunch been well-received for you guys? Um, it was, and then it really kind of slowed down during those fall and winter months. And so we just decided to just stop the program for right now. Um, we haven't brought it back yet. We're kind of figuring out if that's something that we want to do or if we just want to focus on dinner service because that's where we excel. You guys don't accommodate dietary restrictions, which I feel is something that you don't see that much. I'm not saying like, oh, you shouldn't do that or anything. I, I think it's perfectly fine. I think based on what I know, there's a lot of people that require dietary restrictions that don't really require dietary restrictions. And, and that's not all of them, but I think there is you know, some of that stuff with all the health stuff and whatnot out there. Did you guys get any blowback for that decision when you guys decided to do that? Or was everybody kind of like, yeah, cool. They're going to cook the food they want to cook the food. And, and that's you know what I want to experience. We got significantly less than we thought we were going to. We thought it was going to be a giant problem, but it was, you know, when we were going through and figuring out what we wanted Jolly to be, that was always part of the core. Like, you know, as line cooks, the worst possible thing that can happen to you that is regular, and I definitely understand why businesses do it, but one of the worst things that can happen to you is, you know, it's a Friday night and you're just trying to cook. You know, you've been shown how to make this dish or you've been shown how to plate this thing. And then suddenly this ticket comes in with no onions and this ticket comes in that they're allergic to tomatoes and this ticket comes in that they hate sprouts and this and that. And you have all of these modifications on your plates. And I have never understood and neither is that Brendan how you can focus on consistency if you're constantly altering dishes. So, so, you know, it was always important that, you know, we just, we stand, we stick to it. And, uh, you know, we thought it was going to be a very big problem. And it turns out that it wasn't for the most part. We definitely have our guests that come in and, you know, they, you know, I don't like onions. Okay, well, we put a whole bunch of work every single time we change the menu to balance it. Like, you know, we always ensure there's X amount of gluten-free options, X amount of vegan options, X amount of dairy-free options. You know, the whole shibboleth we focus on constantly. So while trying to constantly balance the, the food portion of it and ensure that everyone's having a good time, it is important that our staff is, you know, seeing the same dishes and each customer is having the same experience because we really believe in the food that we take all day to prep and then take all night to cook. And, you know, it's a, I believe personally for me, it's a disservice to the staff if we're constantly altering dishes. How many times have you been out to dinner with maybe a friend or a peer or something and they order a dish and they say, I don't want any sauce on it. And then it comes out and they're like, this is terrible. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> yes, it is terrible because you got it with the thing that's supposed to be on it. Of course. How often do you guys anticipate changing over the menu? So we change the menu every two weeks. We change like five to six items every two weeks. And that's just kind of dependent on what farmers have, you know, kind of what we're feeling inspired by at the moment, which is normally heavily based off of what the farmers have or, you know, what we've kind of pickled and preserved from the last growing season. Where, you know, just kind of like maybe we went and had an amazing meal and we feel inspired by this one particular dish. And, you know, we'll try to figure out 
what was so inspiring about that dish. And while we would never replicate the dish in itself, we want to, you know, pick and pull elements of, you know, different flavors and textures and just kind of make our own dish out of it. So there's no, there's, there's not really like a, there's a map behind changing the menu except for we don't want to cook and serve the same food over and over and over and over again, which there's something to be said about doing that. Like there's something to be said about the consistency of doing that. We've done it my whole life, but we kind of are still just in the phase where we just, you know, we're hungry and we're exploring and we finally have this space to just catch and kind of play in and people received it very, very well. Looking back on the first year of business for you guys, is there anything that you would have done different or would do differently if you had to do it again? So many things while simultaneously not. <laughs> I'm a very big believer in, you know, just owning your choices. And I know Brendan and Nathan are the same. So, you know, we've definitely faltered. We've definitely stumbled. We've definitely dropped the ball a couple of times. And we've learned every single time. Like that's our big thing. It's like, you know, we're going to mess up. We tell the staff, not frequently, but anytime that we do, we tell our staff, you know, we're going to mess up. You guys are going to mess up. That's part of being a person, right? It's human nature. The important thing for us is not making the same mistake twice or three times. Like learn from it, grow from it, put it in your little mental notebook, and then just don't let it happen again. Um, but I, I can't think of one particular thing that we would change other than, you know what, maybe extending our alcohol bar. That's not the only thing. Very small, and we wish that it was bigger. Is there anything that you guys want to implement going into year two that maybe you had on like the idea list when you first opened that you just weren't able to get around to because of different challenges with opening a restaurant? Um, we're working very hard right now to kind of build out a larder. Um, one of the things that we really wanted to do last year was, you know, be able to take fresh Ohio strawberries and serve them in the wintertime because we'd pickle them, preserve them, dehydrated them, whatever we did with them. You know, that was something that We've always loved about cooking and, you know, grew up with pickles and all these kind of different ferments and things like that. So we wanted to do that. We definitely did not have time last year, but now that things have kind of rounded out and settled down and we have to know what we're doing at this point, we kind of have the opportunity at this point to preserve a lot of different things as they come and go out of the growing season. Because I'm sure as you know, like, you know, one week in Ohio, you have strawberries and the next week you don't. Like there, it's not like there's super long growing season for everything. Being located in Dayton, do you guys feel that you have more freedom and maybe less pressure that coincides with that? You know, because you are in a smaller food market, so you guys can kind of experiment more versus if you were in Cincinnati or Columbus, Indianapolis, somewhere nearby, you know, a, a bit larger city where your rent's higher and your food costs are higher and you kind of have to be executing more I don't want to say on point, but numbers come into play a little bit more than where if you're in Dayton, it's like you have a, a little bit more of a leeway in, in kind of experimenting with things. Yeah, no, that is absolutely correct. I mean, that was you know, one of the big reasons of opening a restaurant here, like we talked about earlier, was the you know the, the price point of your overhead, the cost of your overhead is significantly lower than what you would have other places. And it does want us to be a little more experimental um, with the other side of that coin is that the customer base wants what they want. So we knew when we opened our doors that we were not going to do the restaurant for everybody. Like we knew that we were not going to be booked out for a month in advance. We, we knew all of this. What was important to us was to service the customers that want to be part of this journey at 100%. 
through Zoom and through service and through Bethridge. Like that has always been our focus and that will continue to be our focus. Because there's amazing restaurants in the city that are for everyone. I love going there. Brendan loves going there. Mason loves going there. Like we all go there all the time whenever we choose to eat out. But we knew that what was more important to us and to our hospitality and to our restaurant was focusing on the people that want to be part of the journey. With that being said, do you think more chefs from those neighboring cities will start to look towards Dayton as kind of a future expansion opportunity for their concepts? I hope so. I really, really do. Because there's a, there's a lot of cool things that happen in the city. There's a lot of very rich history that happens in, and that has happened in this city. Um, and, you know, not to mention that agriculture around us is amazing. Like some of the best produce that I have ever had traveling anywhere in the United States comes from 20 miles away from the restaurant or 10 miles away from our restaurant. And we use it here. Like our friends over at Fossil Farms are the best. Like they grow some of the best produce that you could ever want. They are absolutely amazing. Um, so I hope that, and you know, that's not to say that there aren't similar farms and things like that in other areas, but here you get that, you get that kind of like friendship element with your farmers and with your neighbors and with your customers. And you can, it's wholesome and it's real and it's, you know, you can touch it. <laughs> you need it. You know, you don't have to worry about so many, some of the other things. You said earlier, you're not good at art. You were never an artist, but you're a chef. So would you consider food to be art? Yes. Yeah, I would. So I'm not a good paper artist. Like I, you know, I can't draw my way out of a paper bag. Like when we're trying to come up and conceptualize dishes and we do the thing where we sketch it out. My sketches look terrible. <laughs> like I, you know, look at people on Instagram and you know, watch food videos and stuff like that. Like everybody else where these chefs are sketching out these amazing dishes and their big notebooks and just like, how do you guys do it? My brain does not work that way. Do not understand. But my rough sketches kind of get the idea across. But yeah, and I think definitely food is definitely definitely art. Um, there's different calibers to it and different layers to it. But I think that it is soulful, and I think that it should remain soulful, and you know, it should be beautiful because the product comes to you beautiful. Um, you know, very rarely do you get ugly pieces of meat. Very rarely do you get ugly pieces of vegetables and even if you do they're delicious and that in itself is also beautiful how has the food and restaurant industry in dayton changed since you've been involved what do you think still needs to change and where do you see it headed i think that it's becoming a little more serious now i think for a long time here in dayton the industry was one where it was people that just didn't know what to do so they you know got into cooking as a job and it kind of remained a job for them I think that it is becoming more serious and the, the bar is raising a little bit more, um, you know, with people like, you know, Casey and Patrick over at Chris or Jorge over at Sueno or I'll even throw our hat in the ring there. Like, you know, it's a, it, this is a career to us and it's something that we eat and breathe and drink and we study when we're not here and we read when we're not here. And if we're on vacations, those vacations are planned around eating and drinking and learning. And so instead of it just becoming your job where you work and you go out and then you get hammered afterwards and you wake up and over and you do it again, it's kind of shifting to becoming a, it's a career. And it's a, a career passion because it's not an easy one either. 
So that's happening. Um, I think everyone's taking sobriety a little more serious, um, especially here. This has always been a very good bar town, a very big brewery town. And I think we're, while there's totally nothing wrong with drinking, uh, if that is sort of where you choose to do, I think there is becoming less of the, like, yeah, let's go out and just like do a bunch of shots and get hammered. It's like, uh, well, let's maybe go out and have a drink. What's next for you professionally? I don't know. So we're working on kind of conceptualizing a second concept. Um, you know, we want to open a couple different things here in the city. And there will only ever be one jolly. So the next thing is something different. Yeah, maybe something a little more approachable and something a little more casual for people. So that's kind of in the works for hopefully the next, we'll call it two years, I think is accurate. Um, just kind of planning that. And I just want to, you know, keep learning and keep growing. I'm part of this thing in Columbus, actually called Indie Chefs, which is some very amazing chefs from out our region. And we're all cooking, I guess, three nights, the 12 courses um, each night. And, you know, it's, it's going to be amazing. So I'm really excited to just kind of like go and be part of this community and hang out and just watch all of these people that, you know, I've eaten at the restaurants and other ones for, have you know looked up to you for a long time or and some their food on the internet i'm excited to be in the same room with them and to them about how we want to grow the industry and change the industry yeah with indie chefs i mean that thing's coming up um this will obviously air probably after that but it, it's you uh avishar matt hagan's bj lieberman andrew smith there's a whole bunch of people there's a couple of people from detroit too as well and and kind of some neighboring states too so it's kind of like a Columbus State, it's like a three-night thing where it seems like it's a good kind of industry collaboration event that you guys get to kind of bounce ideas off each other and, and also just kind of hang out and, and cook. But yeah, that, that sounds like a, a cool thing. And, you know, it's cool that it's coming to Ohio. You know, they've done stuff. And I think the last one they did was in D.C. area or Virginia or something like that. This next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, uh, sommelier Taylor Wolf of The Refectory here in Columbus, Ohio. He asks, what's one wine or food region that if you could preserve it so it never changes due to global warming, industrial factory farming, which would it be? I would probably say Osaka, Japan, I think is my place to where if I could just like freeze it in time, like the whole, actually the whole Kansai region, like if I could just freeze the Kansai region in time. It would definitely do that because they have the best of everything that I've ever been a part of, which is, you know, speaks to the flavors that I enjoy and the techniques that I enjoy and the produce I enjoy personally. But it is top tier quality of everything that you could possibly want, even in the, you know, the most simplest. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? I think if you had to choose one person to teach your parents how to cook professionally who would that person be so if you had to have one chef train your mom and dad how to do your job next question comes from one of our listeners what pacific or pacific asian country are you looking forward to the most to incorporate the flavors into your food there at, at jolly because you guys already have you know kind of korean flavors and japanese but is there any other kind of asian uh, countries that you're looking towards to kind of bring into the fold my kind of my personal obsession with asian food kind of came with vietnamese food um i've i've, I've always 
was about to, I watched the Eagles I beat it frequently still to this day. Um, and it's something that I have kind of gotten away from, I think. And, you know, while it's very important that we tell everyone, like, we do not cook Japanese food. We do not cook Korean food. I have no idea how to do those things. I've never been trained in those things. But the flavors are ones that speak to us. And we're very, very conscious about how we use those flavors and how we use those techniques to be as respectful as we possibly can to the source material. But while simultaneously trying to make them, you know, mid Midwest and pair them with Midwest ingredients. And I think I'd kind of like to do that with Vietnamese food, but it's going to require a whole lot of research before I'm comfortable even trying. So last set of questions here, uh, we ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast, a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes for the listeners. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? I don't know that I can name just one. Everyone has been pivotal from like, you know, personal friendships, the professional relationships. Um, you know, Anne Kearney is a giant influence on my life. She's become a pretty good friend of mine since I'm you know, no longer working with Rita Man. Um, she is, she taught me integrity, I think, first and foremost, and that I think something is something that is pivotal to being in this industry and whether you want to be a line cook or a chef or you're a sommelier or you're a dishwasher, I think integrity speaks waves about everything. So, that I think is one of the biggest things I took from her and so many others. And I can go on all day. What's the one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? One restaurant you recommend that isn't your own? Uh, Griff. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So place you haven't been to yet that you want to visit and also restaurant you haven't eaten at yet, but you want to go to. I would really like to go to Venice in California, which has been on my list for years, and I know they just changed the tasting menu format, so I would, I would love to experience that for fan. And uh, one rest, or one destination I would like to go to, um, I would really like to go to Charleston, South Carolina, believe it or not. I've never been, and thinking about maybe going while the restaurant closes in September, but it's somewhere that I know is beautiful, and the food and culture and heritage is super rich, so... Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I watched, who is one of my best friends now and forever, take off probably uh, an inch and a half of third palm with a mandolin. It was bad. It was really, really bad. She left in an ambulance. How did they fix that? It wasn't. She's got a forever doll on her hands, and I don't know if they did a graph or what they did, but I know that she still has the fleshy bit of her hand, but I don't know that it was always her hand. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything that you know is terrible for you, but you just can't help yourself? Candy, fast food, anything like that? Oh, dude, I love pizza and M's. I love pizza and M's. <laughs> that is because my, like, my biggest guiltiest pleasure in life. And if they are around me, I will eat all of them. Favorite Instagram account you follow? Venice, honestly, is the one where I'm like constantly stalking to kind of see what they're doing and how they're doing it. And you know, he gives some pretty in-depth descriptions. And uh, honestly, uh, Jorge Guzman, the executive chef from Sueño, his food is beautiful and his message is passionate. Um, and I would really like to eat it Petit Leon in Minneapolis one day. It seems like it's a fantastic place. Favorite dish, thing you've ever cooked, created, kind of looking back over the course of your career, you can kind of point to this dish as almost like your aha moment that you knew you could be a professional chef. 
It's on our menu currently. It is my favorite thing that I've ever created, and it's just our Brussels sprouts. So they get dropped in the fryer, which, you know, automatically makes them delicious. And then we toss them with a fermented barbecue, koji salt, sesame seeds, and then they get topped with bonito flakes, scallion, and they're served with Japanese mustard ale. And it's, it's simple. But it is my favorite thing I've ever made. It's like, you know, spicy and the koji makes it a little sweet and it's comfortable from with the aioli and it's, it's everything that I want to, to be. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene that stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there anybody who was kind of a culinary influencer, culinary personality on TV, whether it's, you know, Emeril or Julia Child or Bobby Flay or somebody that you kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? I do love Anthony Bourdain. And I think that the one scene that all will always resonate with me is I don't remember what season it is. But I think it's when they were in, is it when they were in Yemeni and the hotels around them are like getting bombs and everyone's freaking out and he just goes down. They don't know if they're going to live. I believe it would have been Beirut. Beirut, yes. And so he goes down in the kitchen and he just starts like cooking to calm everyone down. That to me is like a true, like that's hospitality. Like that is just like, well, you do well under pressure and you're, you really are aiming to just try to keep everyone happy and keep everyone calm. And that to me speaks waves about a person, waves about leadership. Whoever he was as a person is, you know, most points in my life irrelevant to me because I think about that. That is actually caring about the people that we care about. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. So you can find us at www.jollitydayton.com. Our Instagram is at jollitydayton. And our Facebook is also at jollitydayton. And you can make reservations. You can check our menu updates, see what's going on. Watch all of our wine videos that our bar manager, Brittany, does. All of our information can be found there. And you guys are open Tuesday through Saturday? Tuesday through Saturday. Uh, Tuesday through Thursday, we're open from 3 to 9. And then Friday and Saturday, we're open from 5 to 10. We had a fantastic time there. And we'll be back for sure. We just have to wait on the doctor's clearance uh, for the baby. And we've already been kind of figuring out what restaurants we can bring a baby in a car seat to as long as he's not screaming his head off. So whenever we kind of get the, whenever we get the clearance for that, you know, we'll be we back out eating out in the restaurants and stuff, but it's an awesome small space, kind of intimate, but super casual food's delicious. You know, can't say enough about it. Super easy to get to from Cincinnati or Columbus an hour away. So I heard that there might be a collaboration in the work with a restaurant here, you know, sometime in the fall. So hopefully that comes together and that'd be pretty cool to see you guys kind of do a, a kind of home and home uh, dinner with them if, if that comes to fruition. But really appreciate you coming on. Good luck with the Indie Chefs thing you got coming up too as well. And and we'll be uh, staying in touch and, and hopefully seeing you soon. Cool, man. Thank you so much for your time. Big thanks again to Zach for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his morning. Some of the noise you hear in the background is because he did record it at the restaurant. So they're doing some prep and stuff like that. So we clean up the audio as best we can. Sometimes you get a little background noise in there. The Brandon Grissetti episode had that too as well. And there's been a couple others. It just kind of works out. It kind of gives a different feel to the episode too as well as make sure that you guys can still hear everything. So again, follow him on Instagram at Hot Behind You. Also at Jollity Dayton. Follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. Subscribe to the podcast on whatever 
platform that you use, just hit the follow subscribe button on there and you get all the new episodes in your feed. We got some mini episodes that we're doing. Those are coming out like Monday, Tuesdays. Brand new episodes continue to come out on Thursdays with brand new guests. Episodes hit YouTube a week after they come out too as well. So you can check out the YouTube channel and subscribe there and check out the website for any more contact information. If you're looking for somebody or need a link to one of the episodes or something like that, any of the guests, we put all their contact information and a bunch of food photos up there too as well, as well on our Instagram. It's a cool restaurant, so would definitely recommend taking the drive. If you're from Columbus, it's like an hour. If you're from Cincinnati, I think it's a little bit less. Just hitting up Sueno and, and Jollity. They're really, really awesome spots. Wish those places were here in Columbus, but we have a lot of new restaurants coming too as well. So it's cool to see Dayton kind of have this revitalization effort, especially since, you know, Zach and the guys are originally from Dayton too as well. So they're doing stuff in their hometown, which is awesome to see. More episodes on the way. Appreciate everybody listening and continuing to listen. It's always cool to have people on the podcast and, and they've been listening for a little while. I'm not just doing a crash course to make sure that they don't say the wrong thing or something like that when they come on. So that's always cool to hear when people pop on and we're having conversations before we start recording and whatnot. So there is a rumor. I don't know if this will happen, but I'll just throw it out there that Jollity and Veritas will do like a, a kind of crossover event. So they'll do like a, a special dinner at like Veritas and then a couple of weeks later do it at Jollity. So that was kind of in the works. Um, so just follow their Instagrams, both those restaurants, and they'll announce it uh, whenever it gets to that point. I think that was supposed to be sometime in the fall, but um, looking forward to getting back out to Jollity whenever we get a chance. Continue to help spread the word. Appreciate everybody for listening and we will talk to you guys next week.